Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I assume you're the one in charge? You had your men put something in my father's head. Key. To lock away your treasure. It's ripping him apart. How do I extract the key? You wouldn't know what to do with it even if you had it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode. We dive in-depth into what is going on. We speculate about crazy theories, but we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes, and that includes anything on the next time on preview that HBO shows. You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Uh, you may or may not hear my voice sound slightly different today. That is because I've been violently ill the last three days, and I'm only now starting to recover. So if I cough or uh, do anything that an extremely sick person might do, that's why that's the case. Uh, and sorry in advance, but you know what, Joanna? I'm here. Um, my uh, uh, you know illness programming is, is dialed way down, but it's still kind of present in the background. But I'm ready to do some recapping with you. So how's your how's your cortical fluid? Uh, you know it's extremely low. I've been like sweating it out all these last few days <laughs> trying to heal. So uh, anyway, uh, still 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 ready to uh, dive into some theories with you, some responses. Um, so let's get into it, shall we? Uh, we usually like to begin every episode by talking about uh, emails that people sent into us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Um, and Joanna, you want to kick us off with, a, with an email from a listener? Yeah, we got an email from uh, one, of, one of my personal heroes, actually. Wow. Send us an email. Yeah, Kelly, Kelly Sue DeConnick, who's a great comic book writer. I don't know if you guys uh, have read her stuff. She did a great run on Captain Marvel, sort of like uh, considered the person who resurrected the character of Captain Marvel into like um, a more prominent fandom. She had, did a series called Pretty Deadly, which is amazing, and also a really incredible series called Bitch Planet. Bitch, Bitch Planet, Pretty Deadly combined is sort of is what Westworld is, so I, I am not at all surprised that she's a Westworld fan. She's also a Game of Thrones huge game of thrones fan um and she wrote into us with a request for some help uh you know to, to send out to our listeners basically she did this amazing um game of thrones costume party last year and if you look on her 
Twitter, which is at Kelly Sue, or on her Instagram, which I think is also at Kelly Sue, uh, you will see photos of this party where she's dressed as the Weirwood tree uh, from Game of Thrones and just looks amazing. It's her Twitter icon. It looks scary and beautiful and tremendous. And so she's like her same group of friends who do these really inventive costume parties are doing a Westworld party this year. And so she wanted some ideas on what to wear that's sort of like a little off the beaten path. You know, like dressing as the weirwood tree is different from dressing as like Daenerys Targaryen. You know, it's like a little bit of a like funky idea. So like she wanted to come up with a like sort of funky idea for a Westworld party. Her great idea was to go as the player piano, which I kind of love. And I think she should go as like, I don't know, a kind of bloody shot up player piano. She can figure out how to make that work. Um, there's, she said, I've toyed with the idea of the player piano and that's probably my favorite so far, but if anything else strikes you or your listeners, I'd love to hear it. If I use someone's idea, I'd be happy to send them a set of pretty deadly trades even. Do not feel compelled or even pressure to share this on air, she says, um, but we are sharing it because I love a costume party and I love the idea of helping Kelly Sue. Yeah, um, uh, so, so you said Kelly Sue, yeah. she helped write, uh, Captain Marvel. Uh, that name sounds kind of familiar. Like... Is is it just me, or is there a major Marvel film coming out next year based on that comic book? I think that's right, there, right? There is a major film starring Brie Larson that's based on the character of Captain Marvel. You know, like, there's some inspiration from what Kelly Sue wrote, surely, in there, but uh, it's not a direct adaptation of her comic book. But, yeah, yeah, you might have heard of it. Yeah, uh, of also, it. you know, without spoiling anything, uh, a major uh, part, uh, a major factor, I should say, in the uh, wild runaway hit Avengers Infinity War that happened this uh, this summer. Um, mm. So, anyway... Uh, I think this is a uh, prime opportunity uh, to help out a very brilliant creative force in the world today, uh, and that is uh, messaging or at replying Kelly Sue on Twitter with your uh, Westworld costume ideas, right? Yes, and I just wanted to run down a few ideas I crowdsourced to some of my friends and came up with a few ideas. Um one was uh, Maggot Ford. So Ford's decomposing body with some maggots. That sounds fun. Uh, one was James Delos on a stationary bike. But that seems like it would be hard to get around a party uh, dressed as James Delos with a stationary bike. One I really like is to go as half William, half man in black. So like do um, old, old William, young William and do like have a hat that's like one half black, one half white. Uh, what do you think of that idea? I, I think it should be a uh, costume that uh, if you you know tilt your head down and then tilt it back up again, it becomes a different face. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to, oh, yeah. to be inspired by the <laughs> William Madden Black transition in Westworld. So the reveal, yes. I love it. Um, you could go as one of the mind eggs of the chestnut, so that's sort of like a hard concept to pull off. But my favorite maybe uh, is to go as the the can of milk. Uh, that Teddy picks up on the street. That's not necessarily as fun as like a bloody weirwood tree, but it's kind of a fun idea to go as, as the iconic can of milk that Teddy picks up. Just, you know, just trying to look chivalrous. So if you guys have better ideas, and I'm sure you do, think think a little outside the box for at Kelly Sue, K-E-L-L-Y-S-U-E on Twitter, and uh, let her know what you think. All right. Uh, let's continue with some more emails. This one comes in from Trisha Chapman, who writes into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. 
quote, I usually hate the virgin slash whore thing, but it's almost inescapable in this story. Maybe it's even on purpose. We have two quote unquote bad robots. One is a virgin who's been raped every night for untold years who becomes a battle leader, maybe a la Joan of Arc. And the other is a seasoned madam who was a mother in a previous life. They take arcs that are definitely non-traditional in many respects. Dolores is certainly bloody and harsh, not the traditional virgin daughter. It's almost like they've inverted her. And Maeve is far from the traditional femme fatale. She's an uber mom, intensely empathetic, deeply caring, hard at times maybe, but she's deeply feeling, harshly empathetic. She's caring to the core, while Dolores is ostensibly uncaring to the core. We get a hard virgin and a soft whore. Which at first annoys me so because I hate the reduction of women to nothing more than that. But at second look, I like it because they're both deeper than that. Dolores becomes a soldier and so does Maeve. They just go about it differently with their own spin and in their own ways. They invert their own tropes. Dolores becoming becoming unexpectedly cold. Maeve becoming strangely soft. If anything, we started out empathizing with Dolores and being neutral to Maeve. But now I think most viewers would call Maeve the main hero, right? The tainted woman becomes the hero. I think she's the key to the whole thing. End quote. Uh, so, yeah, what do you think of these tropes and how they're deployed in the show, Joanna? Uh, obviously, you've expressed your strong opinion on the Dolores versus Maeve, you know, how interesting those characters are um, with Maeve taking it by a long shot. But curious what you thought of Trisha's email here. Yeah, I love this idea of the uh, Madonna whore, virgin whore sort of trope, which I hadn't really thought about those two characters in such binary terms as as sort of Trisha says, we should reject binary definitions of female roles. But I hadn't really thought of it that way. And I really like the way in which their characters contradict the classic virginal uh, heroine or the classic horror. I mean, like Dolores is original, but also, you know, I, I mean, has had sex, but um, I don't know when I was reading Trisha's email and I got to like hard virgin and soft whore, I was like, yeah, I want to read this email. <laughs> um, I just, I think, I think it's really interesting. Um, especially since we see such a, uh, you know, a, a nice repeat of their earlier confrontation in the season. We see that again, sort of in this episode. And I just really like the way, um, those two characters are yinning and yanging and yeah it's true that um i've said that mave is my favorite by far but um uh, i really did like a lot of dolores in this episode and i always prefer it when i find dolores interesting so yeah indeed um i want to read this email from rachel who writes into decoding westworld at gmail.com uh that she rachel links to this new york times article and she says, reading this piece about the long racially charged history of children being torn from their mothers I couldn't help thinking about Maeve's desperation to be with her daughter. I've been wondering why she would be so devoted to the idea of reuniting with her programmed robot daughter. But I think it's really about robots trying to achieve humanity. Only creatures who are considered less than human, like slaves uh, or immigrants, uh, you know, treated less than human by society, would be treated this way. Uh, Solomon Northrup, a free man uh, living in New York, was kidnapped into slavery in 1841. In his memoir, 12 Years a Slave, he described a slave auction where a woman named Eliza and her little daughter, Emily, were sold to different buyers. Quote, never have I seen such an exhibition of intense, unmeasured, and unbounded grief, uh, end quote, he wrote. Emily's parting words were forever seared on Eliza's mind. Uh, Don't leave me, mama. Don't leave me. Another child of Eliza's was sold at an earlier auction, and the wound of knowing that she would not see her children again would never heal. Uh, quote, in the cotton field, in the cabin, always and everywhere, end quote, Northrop observed. Uh, she was take, talking of them, often to them, as if they were actually present. That's email from Rachel, and I think she's pointing to uh, both the kind of parallel between uh, what is happening with Maeve and her uh, – 
Android daughter on the show um, and also like our America's unfortunate history of treating human beings as less than. Um, but also that there is an unfortunate parallel with uh, some of the policies in the current U.S. administration as well. Um, yeah, yeah, right. and the, and this sort of like sh- like the shock that we or like a Sizemore maybe would exhibit over like Maeve's connection to her daughter is maybe similar to the way in which um, perhaps terrible shitty white slave owner Americans would be like, oh, uh, a slave woman's connection to her daughter. Like how strange that they would have those kind of feelings. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, um, uh, the show confronts us us with ways in which, um, uh, you know, creatures who are human in, in many, many respects would be considered less than human. Right. And like the ways in which we dehumanize people, um, and I think it does so in a fairly effective fashion uh, overall, overall. Um, and we can talk about the specifics later today. So, uh, yeah, those are some emails. Anything else you want to say in reaction to that, Joanna? No, I just I, I really liked it. And I, I love when our listeners send us in like articles that are not even directly related to Westworld. It's yeah. always it expands my view of the show. So yeah. thank you. Very thought provoking. And we appreciate you emailing us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Uh, there will be some more time for emails later on in this episode of the podcast. Uh, but let's dive into season two, episode seven, shall we, John Robinson? Uh, Les Ecorches, I think is how it's pronounced in French. Um, I think it's Les Ecorches. But, oh, yeah, um, Ecorche. Yeah, sorry. The accent um, aigu uh, <laughs> is on the that last E. Um, but uh, before we get into this episode, can I do like a very – we had a couple requests for like a very brief um, timeline sort of catch-up. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think uh, the show is – every like when I, I don't know about your experience of watching a show, Joanna, but when I'm watching a show – uh, anytime there's like new characters on screen, I always say, okay, this is two weeks ago, right? Or, okay, this is present <laughs> right. day, just to like right. say it out loud because um, I usually watch with my wife, but also uh, to kind of make sure that I'm I'm right. You know what I mean? Right. So like, okay, it's two weeks ago. Is that right? Because if, if it's not, then uh, she'll usually contradict me. So uh, it is pretty confusing to follow. So yeah, take us through the timeline, Joanna. Well, we'll just say that in this episode, thankfully, like almost everything is taking place in one continuous timeline, with the exception of there's like a basically a frame narrative, right? You've got the opening scene and the closing scene take place in quote unquote present day, which is at least a day, if not a few days after Bernard washing up on the beach that opened the season. Right. Right. So most of the episode took place and I think it's like a week not two weeks ago but like a week ago like midway through that two week gap that we've been talking about all season yep but basically most of what happens in the mesa and with Maeve and william and all of that is like let's say a week ago and then you've got the frame of charlotte interrogating bernard opening and closing the episode which takes place now but all of the now is happening after bernard washed up on the beach and after the valley was flooded. So we got an email, someone asking like, okay, if, if Charlotte and Strand, uh, who's Gustav Skarsgård's tall, bald-headed Delos character, uh, if they interrogate Bernard and they find out that he's 
a host? Does that mean they knew he was a host when he washed up on the beach? The answer seems to be no, because the beach happened before that interrogation, which opens and closes this episode. Right. So, yeah. And uh, I, I, I do, I do think like it is, pre- I, I, I agree 100% with everything you're saying. Like that all makes sense, but I do think it is pretty confusing. Like, uh, oh yeah. The, the show. Well, the show. The problem yeah. is, it all takes place in the same environment in this episode, right? Not uh, only that, but like similar characters. When you cut from like Charlotte in the past, Charlotte a week ago, Charlotte now, and she's wearing like, like the same thing. Similar clothes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that that it makes it pretty disorienting, I right? Would say, and so. and it, when I say similar environment, I know they're in like Ford's like secret bunker, but like the you know the color palette is roughly the same, and the environment like looks roughly the same. So. It's tough to delineate between the two timelines. Usually shows um, – uh, basically there's like many tricks you can do to delineate timelines. I'm surprised the show didn't do them. Uh, for instance, the show could have like a very clearly different color palette depending on the time frame. Um, I don't know that it really does that or at least doesn't do that super can, effectively. Um, they could do a letterbox. They could do uh, a letterbox. They could do no. a different uh, aspect uh, ratio. Uh, but, but, but for um, an example, for an example of like different uh, yeah. color grading uh, for to represent like kind of different uh, uh, geographic areas, at least uh, I would look to like Steven Soderbergh's Traffic, which I think did a pretty good job of delineating mm-hmm. between three separate locations with three really distinct color palettes. Um, so that you know, that's one way the yeah. show could delineate. Uh, you pointed to wardrobe is another way they could do it. Um, yeah. And uh, what else? Yeah, aspect ratio. Um, there's there's many things the show could do to make it easier that it's not doing, and that's a little disappointing. But you know, uh, that's why you have this podcast to help explain everything to you. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the um, the the like the idea that um, Charlotte looks no different. <laughs> in the Mesa of a week ago in the Mesa now is maddening. Um, you know, like get her a hat. I don't care what it is. Get her something that like distinguishes. Like maybe Dolores cut her hair before she killed her, you know? Right. You know, or before she wanted to kill her or something like that. Exactly. So uh, Elias Mata in the chat says, other than wardrobe, it would be a bit too blunt. I, I mean, what's true is that Westworld has never fucked around with color palette when it comes to the present and the past. That's not something that they do. But yeah, I think I think just just the simple trick of having Charlotte look at least a little different um, in the two different thing uh, timelines would help us because you've got um, yeah, that's that. I was all. watching a, a, a video essay by this YouTuber named Patrick Willems, who's a, a YouTuber I'd highly recommend. And he, it was a video essay about car chases and how, mm-hmm. uh, like, he was comparing, like, a car chase from Quantum of Solace to, like, a uh, car chase from Born Supremacy. And one thing that is really helpful is when, um, you know, uh, the cars are all different, right? So, like, like, they're driving cars that look really, really different. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, you can easily tell just by a glance, you know exactly where everyone is located. Um, anyway, I think we've uh, belabored this point for uh, well, <laughs> a sufficient amount of time. The, the, la- the last thing I'll say is that um, a friend of mine, great Westworld writer Kim Renfro, has a has a timeline over on Insider. Also, a friend of mine, Dave Gonzalez, has a timeline over on Thrillist.com. I would recommend both of those timelines. Um, they're really helpful. Kim's is super visual uh, and sort of runs down all the important um, 
incidents that have happened uh, on Westworld, uh, it's really helpful in terms of orienting yourself. So the you should it's titled An Essential Timeline of Every Important Event on Westworld by Kim Renfro on Insider. That would be something that I would recommend you have every Sunday <laughs> to take a look at. So, but but uh, you know, a point that someone made uh, to me on Twitter, I think today or yesterday, someone someone on Twitter was complaining about they didn't understand Westworld, and someone who listens to our show very kindly did what people often do, which is tag us in and say like, "Hey, listen to Decoding Westworld with Joanna and Dave. Like, it's essential for me understanding Westworld." And that's super kind. But the person who originally complained responded. Yeah, but it's kind of fucked that HBO is making a show that you need like all this extra, like extraneous material in order to understand. And I'm like, yeah, I, ca- I can't argue with that. Like, I'm so grateful you guys listen to our podcast, but like, it shouldn't be so disorienting, you know? All right, we can we can yeah. move on. I did I did like this episode, so that's something. <laughs> and teeing it up like that, it was an awesome episode. No, I mean, um, <laughs> all right. So the episode begins as you pointed out with a bookend segment uh, with. Uh, Strand, Charlotte, so it's present day, Strand, Charlotte, Stubbs, uh, Bernard, they all end up in the uh, Ford's lair where uh, we saw in first season uh, Ford commanded Bernard to murder, uh, what's her name? Sydney Babson Knudsen, right? Um, Teresa. Teresa, right. Yeah. Um, and it is revealed that there are many Bernards like kind of stored away in there. Uh, And that's when all the humans realize that Bernard is in fact the host. Right. Uh, Pretty effective cold opening, I would say. Um, What did you think of this opening scene? Uh, I I really liked it. I, um, I like returning to the underground lab. I like closing the loop, uh, not to use a, a stupid Westworld term, but closing the loop on like Teresa's death. Cause I feel like that's a big thing that maybe Bernard never fully reckoned with. I will say though, they used that. Sh- I know we don't talk about trailers and we don't talk about next time on, but that doesn't mean I don't watch them. And that image of yeah. all the Bernards hanging in the closet and Charlotte discovering it has been used in like all of the trailers for the season. Mm. And it's a pretty incredible shot yeah. that I do kind of wish had been kept uh, back, you know? Well, fortunately uh, I don't watch any of that stuff and I was shocked. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it is a really effective visual, um, and raise and as with many things in Westworld, raises a lot of questions. Like, why do you need more than one Bernard? You know, why, why do you need like fifty Bernards? Isn't isn't one Bernard sufficient? Um, but maybe we can talk. If about you that a if you could have fifty Jeffrey Wrights around you, wouldn't you want that too? Um, I got to think about it, Jonah. I got to think. Okay. About it. So then, I did talk to Jeffrey. I, I did talk to Jeffrey Wright for the other pod, the Westworld podcast that I do um, about what it was like to walk into, like to to play that scene. You know uh, what I mean? Like think about that Dave Chen like walking into a room and seeing a bunch of like Dave Chen bodies hanging <laughs> from like meat hooks. I, I um, mean, I barely uh, can look in a mirror and see one Dave Chen. You know, <laughs> so seeing many would be terrifying. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, so then we flash back to uh, one week ago, roughly, right? Sure. And we see Abernathy nailed to a chair, and um, Stubbs and Charlotte Hale are protecting him. Um, and, I mean, essentially, like, Dolores is running a riot, like, running riot on all the security people and, like, completely destroys everyone. Um, and, you know, and as we predicted, like, you know, they, they have no mercy 
uh, against you know the uh, the a- like aggro alpha male from last week uh, that was really throwing his weight around. Like just we knew like would be completely annihilated this episode, and in fact he was. So uh, anyway, they're, they're terrorizing everyone and um, Cough- you know, Coughlin. Coughlin, our, that's right. Yeah. Our Irish second Muldoon. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, like there's more, just more scenes of like them terrorizing the organization and like, you know, some people might enjoy this stuff. I I don't know. What do you think of it, Joanna? Like at this point, every single time there's an action scene in the Mesa, my reaction is not like, wow, that's a, it's a really well choreographed action scene. The, The action is adequate, you know, it's completely fine. But my, my reaction is like, the the security in this place is like the most useless ever. Like that every single time there's an action scene in the Mesa, that's how I feel. Um, but like, do you still get a thrill out of this stuff? What do you think? I think there is a difference between the action that that is at the front of this episode, and then like the beautiful choreographed um, action that like where they use Beethoven at the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, and so one is artful violence that I actually found um, very intriguing to watch. And one was just sort of, yeah, aggressive. Someone pointed out, someone emailed us to us that like has, have uh, Clementine's settings been changed? Cause she has more shooting accuracy than like any single one of Lawrence's cousins or all of his cousins combined or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's, there's some stuff that works for me, some stuff that doesn't. Um, Teddy, I think it's important for us to see Teddy in sort of first person shooter a video game mode. I think that's important for us to see. Uh, but there's some other stuff like that. The Clementine thing. I don't care that much about, um, but I did like the Angela and the cradle scene. So it just, it really depends, I guess is the yeah. point. Like just machine guns going doesn't really do it for me. We saw that like a bit last year with, um, like Armistice and Hector going through the Mesa last the end of last season, that that gets a little boring for me. But there are some grace notes that really worked for me. So, all right, why don't we talk about uh, the scene where Teddy and Dolores get to the room where, uh, the room where Abernathy is being held, and they kind of have this confrontation uh, with Charlotte Hale, and um, Charlotte tries to like play it off as as though she's their friend like oh my god this what a scientific breakthrough that you've uh, started murdering everyone you know um and then uh you, you know like kind of kind of talks her way out of things and is almost murdered by dolores before escaping mysteriously um like what did you think of the dolores charlotte interaction um, I, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about like how I don't necessarily love how they're using Tessa Thompson on the show this season, but I do like the sort of fake, um, she's like, Oh, Dolores. And you're just like, okay. All right, Charlotte. You know, like that is like giving at least, uh, Tessa Thompson a few other, uh, notes to play. Yeah. Uh, in her character. And then a similar, I, I, I actually even liked even more Stubbs's greeting where he's like, Teddy, like buddy, Teddy, you're a nice guy. I'm so happy to see. Oh no, you are murdering now. This is not good. So, um, I don't know. I, I just thought it was the Teddy greeting cracked me up more than anything else. Um, but generally the Charlotte stuff doesn't work super great for me. And also there's, I don't really understand why 
Dolores was prevented from finishing the job. Like we know she's not going to die because we know we've seen her further along in the timeline. Yeah. But like Dolores is going for her head with the buzzsaw and then she gets distracted by like bullets when the, like the whole thing is just so weirdly staged in my opinion. Yeah. Like because yeah. uh first of all, Teddy not executing st- like Teddy's executing dudes left and right. And then the idea that he's gonna barge into the room and not kill Stubbs, I can understand maybe keeping Charlotte Hale alive because uh maybe you know maybe she can she holds a key somehow to like unlocking abernathy and like she wants to keep him alive but like why would they keep Stubbs alive and then teddy goes off off on his mission and then some other random dude takes his place it it just is all very weird in my opinion and not like particularly effective um so i thought it was kind of like an odd dynamic and yeah like charlotte gets away i mean this is an episode joanna that i think in general like brushes up against taking some really big chances right like um, killing the man in black, killing Charlotte Hale, even though that wouldn't make any sense. Because, or maybe it does make sense. Maybe future Charlotte Hale is a, a host. You know, um, killing um, Maeve. You know what I mean? Like it kind of comes up against these really big choices and and doesn't doesn't take any of those paths. And um, and that's disappointing to me. But you know, I think it's more most most acute in this scene when uh, Charlotte and Stubbs escape for for no reason so yeah i mean um i would balance that with um as much as some of that stuff doesn't work for me like uh what does work for me is the abernathy dolores like death scene and one thing that this episode potentially does and i hope the show sticks to it is change the stakes on death because the cradle is destroyed, right. which I know I'm getting ahead of things, but because the cradle is destroyed, that is a death scene for the character of Abernathy, yeah. who is a character we've seen since episode one. Maybe not a main character, but like a major character. And like that's a first kind of for these bots who we've seen like get blown up a million times, but you can always reboot them. You can't bring him back now that the cradle's gone. In theory, who knows? They could be hiding something else. I don't know. Never say never. But like that's what it feels like to me that that's the end for Abernathy. And I really liked the performance performance of both the actor Lewis Hertham and of Evan Rachel Wood. I want to give Evan Rachel Wood every credit I can whenever I can because people are mad at me that I don't like Dolores this season, but like I really liked this whole father-daughter goodbye scene. So, yeah. Yeah, and I will say I'm I'm pretty negative on this episode overall, but I agree with you that that was a really effective scene. So, uh really um, well acted, yeah. Um Amen or Amen, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, in, in the chat says, I love guy-guy action movie scenes that are slightly homoerotic, and the Hail Dolores scene made me briefly think of that. Um, I agree with that. Like I, Because um, both those actresses are queer women, and it was like the beginning of tr- Pride Month. So I put some dumb screen cap on, tweet, on Twitter where I was just like, happy Pride Month from Westworld, and it's like... Dolores and Charlotte super talking super close to each other in a very like expendables sort of just yeah. make out kind of way. Um, and so I, I, I do like, you know, you don't get often get to see, you know, the, the badass female uh, action hero and the menacing uh, evil corporate person, both be women, you know, like that's, that's uh, that's a different thing, but I agree with you that there's some clumsiness in the whole Mesa uh, takeover. Yeah. All right, Joanna, let us talk about the cradle and what's going on with Bernard in the cradle. Um, and I, I just want to say, like, um, you know, every now and then, once every blue moon, which for those who don't know means on an incredibly rare occasion, I, David Chen, get something right. 
and I think I think I got something right about the cradle. Like, remember I-, I talked last week about the cradle and how like uh, there's something distinctive about code being fused into a host uh, that that results in the cognitive plateau thing. Uh, I'm pretty sure I mentioned that in the show last week, um, but that impulse seems to have been confirmed this week. Like that week. I'm sorry. Can you can you say that again? I don't uh, disbelieve you. I just don't really understand what you're saying. Can oh, you say that again? so um, last week on the show, I mentioned this uh, concept that uh, like the reason hosts reach a cognitive plateau um, is that there's something about putting the code into like a host body, right? Um, but that like code living not in a host body could theoretically be completely fine, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be confirmed this week uh, mm-hmm. when. Bernard goes into the cradle and speaks with Ford and uh, Ford basically just outright says that like uh, the code in the cradle works differently than it does if it's implanted into hosts. Right. Um, And that's how like he's able to live in the cradle. Am I right about that? Yeah. I think it's right. He says, he says that if he had been out in the real world, uh, he would decay and malfunction, but yep. in the cradle, he can live forever. I don't know what that means for like what he then does next. Right. If his next action is something that would lead to a decay, I don't know the answer to that. But like, yeah, he seems to draw a distinction. I really like what he says. I think he says um, that the Delos project is what does he say? Like a, a tune whistled by a soft headed boy, like whistling a tune that someone else composed or something like that. Like a beautiful hop. Hopkinsian uh, delivery of of that line, but just nice this idea use of that like Hopkinsian, nice, <laughs> thank you. But this idea that like Delo, the Delos project is not functional, uh, but he found a somewhat of a loophole. And like, I don't know if you remember this. I was thinking of you in this moment because like at the end of season one, in the finale, uh, which I think you and I rewatched just before season two. Um, Bernard keeps doing this thing where he'll like accuse Ford of something. Yes. And then Ford will be like, nope, nope, it's this. <laughs> and he does it multiple times. And this happens in this episode. He's like, so you're going to live forever. And he's like, no, no, nope, nope. Yep. That's not what we're doing here. You know, and I was like, oh, it's the thing that Dave didn't like. And yeah. they're doing it in this episode. I mean, that's so, pretty, yeah. I think it's just pretty rough as a, as like a writing device. Um, yeah. I, I remember once seeing a, um, a super cut of, uh, the phrase "you just don't get it," do you? Right? Like, the, there's a phrase that occurs in movies very often, and someone says, "You just don't get it," do you? And when you hear the phrase "you just don't get it," do you? You know that what is going to happen immediately after that is a an, an exposition dump of the actual truth of what is going on. Um, and there's kind of a crutch that writers lean on that uh, I'm just I'm just not a fan of because it's like okay you let us down one path and now you're saying like oh no we're going on this completely different path and that's fine to a point but I think that Westworld does it way too often um, multiple times often within one episode and I think this episode is definitely an egregious practitioner of that uh, so in this episode Ford reveals what the true purpose of the park is we finally get some answers Joanna um, but it's He's, like what we thought it was. Yes, that's yeah. right. I mean, we got confirmation. Right? <laughs> uh, he says here, quote, every piece of information in the world has been copied, backed up, except the human mind, the last analog device in a digital world. We weren't here to, and then it said, we weren't here to code the hosts. We were here to decode the guests. And at that point I said, hey, that's the name of the podcast. Hey, um, that's the name of the show. Yes. <laughs> we we're here to decode the guests. Um, I also uh, like if it whether or not that's um, 
a decoding westworld shout out i don't know <laughs> let's let's pretend it is because we're egotistical 100 percent. Um, like i'm sure they were like gotta give decoding westworld the shout out there um let's just pretend why not let's just pretend yeah, no but um i'm not pretending but, it's, a, it's a fact but okay continue. okay yeah. but but just before that uh there's like <laughs> it feels like there's another shout out because ford's talking to bernard and bernard's like what's where does it all what does it all mean where do we all go and he's like Oh, isn't the story more fun if you, you know, find out the ending for yourself? Mm. And I was like, that also feels like a decoding Westworld slash Reddit shout out yeah. of like, calm down, detectives. Let's just let's just all get there together, you know? Indeed, indeed. So uh the idea is that uh okay, how would you explain what Ford is trying to communicate in this scene? Um Oh, of what the great plan is? Yes. Okay, so that the the loops so so the idea of Westworld obviously we know it's not just like a pleasure park for rich assholes, but it's also not just like a research facility to try to uh, perfect AI because that's not the point. Um, the loops are not uh, a way for like a, a Dolores to get smarter and smarter and better and better. Uh, a, a, like according to the Delos plan. The loops act as a constant, uh, a control in an experiment, and the guests are the variables. And when the guests go in, the way in which they interact with these uh, established loops, these these controls, um, helps Delos map their consciousness and their personality. So, uh, you know, if you, Dave, go into the park and all you want to do is, like, uh, paint horses in a meadow somewhere. Um, That's that, totally that all I would do, yep. That informs Delos about what your personality type is. And if I go into Westworld and all I want to do is, oh, my God, I can't think of anything that makes me sound like a good go, person. Go horse riding, um, horseback riding, yeah. <laughs> um, then that says something else about who I am. You know what I mean? But we're, but we're bumping up the same reset of Sweetwater every time. Um, and so the way you react to it and the way I react to it informs them about our consciousness because they are recording that because it's in the fine print, which we've known since season one, because HBO put it up on the website, what the fine print of the contract is, which is that they have access to our DNA and also, I guess, um, mapping our consciousness. <laughs> so, yeah. What is, to, to what end to, to, is the mapping of consciousness so like... So like, they can duplicate them. Yeah. So but, that they can make their own Dave Chen, which they can now. If you've but been why, to, but why would anyone want another Dave Chen? You know what I mean? Like I can bear, the world can barely handle one. Oh buddy, one. oh buddy. <laughs> I thought we already established that. Like I put five of you on a beat hook any day of the week. Oh, that's so that is so sweet. That's the nicest thing Isn't you said it? to me. Um, I'm pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but seriously, like is is that? Do you find that explanation satisfying? Like oh, we want to create. Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't know why they're doing that yet. Um, we 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 speculated about this before. Like, say they want to take over the world. Right, right. Like that. That's interesting. The idea that they want to use offer, it to, yeah, or or offer you a choice of a kind of immortality. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we can say that there are like many possible reasons why they want to do it. Right. But that like it's not a hundred percent clear why yet. Is that not yet? Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah, I yep. would say – I mean like something William said this season is um, he wants to answer a question uh, you know, that maybe humanity hadn't even thought about asking yet or something like that. And that might might just be immortality. I don't know what exactly it is. But um, 
but that's something, um, yeah, I guess is something that we haven't figured out yet. But, um, I think what's even more interesting is a lot of people had wondered sort of like, how does it work if you don't have, um, if the person hasn't visited the park and that's how you get a Bernard out of an Arnold, which is an imperfect copy, you know, right. Ford, Ford did talk because, uh, you know, as we found out in this episode, uh, the code version of Dolores in those scenes that we've already, we saw a couple times this season over the years ran tests in order to try to protect, uh, perfect this digital copy of Arnold into a uh, Bernard. We, we find out sort of what happens when you need to build a personality and uh, you don't have that Delos mapping sort of technology at your beck and call. And that's like Dolores and Ford together sort of coded this version of Arnold into the Bernard character. And they did it inside the cradle and they did it over a long period of time. And these are the, this is the scene that we've been uh, seeing this season is of a digital version of Dolores uh, running tests over and over again to try to perfect and hone uh, this Arnold copy. I do know that Ford was like made Bernard out of Arnold, but took away some of like his willfulness. So it's not, it was never intended to be a perfect copy. I mean, the important thing to know about all of this is that Bernard is something different from Dolores and different from like a Jim Delos, right? He's not a, a host per se uh, in, in the same way that Dolores is. And he's not a human consciousness uploaded to a body, but he's some sort of weird hybrid um, which is fun. So, yeah. Right. And like, like basically there's something special about Bernard, which is why like, um, uh, Dolores, you know, had to run trials on him and why there's like multiple versions of him in, in that bunker. Right. Like there's something about him that's unique. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you would, once again, I don't know why you would need so many bodies necessarily, but there's all of that. And we should say like, because people will get mad at us if, if we don't, that, um, uh, last season, when they went down into that bunker lab, uh, there was something printing, uh, a skeleton printing. A lot of people were theorizing that it was Ford on the printer or something like that. Uh, the printer's empty now. Hmm. Uh, we see a robotic sort of skeleton of a dog, but that seems something else entirely that has to do with like the greyhound and jock and all of that. We do see Tessa Thompson's character, Charlotte, playing with an arm at one point and that arm is not uh, belonging to Bernard in that it is a Caucasian hand on the arm. Uh So, uh, I don't know, um, if there is, I don't think it's Ford, but I don't also don't think if, if that printing the body down there was supposed to be a clue for something, I don't think we have a conclusive answer to it yet. So got it. Yeah. So, then I mean, we should also say we had a our, our, we had a mind freak out last week because we were trying to understand what exactly those like that opening scene from last week was right, um, and so it was confirmed in this week's episode that that was in fact taking place inside the cradle, right? Yeah, and that Dolores was running like woke Dolores who is in the cradle, even though we don't see her in Sweetwater, right? Uh, or maybe it's woke Dolores in Sweetwater uh, in the cradle, but like she, she at night she does the, the Bernard testing, right? Um, woke Dolores was just running a ton of trials on uh, some code version of Bernard, 
like that is the explanation of the opening scene of last week's episode. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And our lovely listener, Raymond Terry, made a bet with me last week that it wasn't happening in the cradle. And I made a dollar bet with him on Twitter and he gracefully lost. And I was going to let him go because he's been right a million times when I've been wrong. Uh, but he instead donated $10 to a charity of my choice. Oh. So I know. Our listeners are the best. So yeah, happy, happy, happy Pride Month. The LGBTQ Center in San Francisco got a $10 donation. I think $11 donation from him. So nice. Uh, yeah. Everyone's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, your 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 uh, superior theorizing is making the world a better place, Joanna. So. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Uh, and then, like, you know, Ford reveals how Bernard was created, and Dolores helped turn Arnold into Bernard um, in the house that Arnold created. We see the house again, um, and then Ford takes free will back from Bernard. Right, like um, he like kind of puts his hand over the you know bernard's head or whatever and then like when bernard gets out of the cradle and elsie and bernard get out of the cradle room like ford is um coexisting with bernard like do we even know what the hell is going on there i would call him like a passenger it it, like reminds me of of a lot of um it's a classic tv trope that i love actually which is a haunting sort of or a crazy you know crazy person seeing some I don't like that word crazy. Um, you know, someone seeing someone who's not there or uh, being haunted. My favorite version of that is this Canadian TV show, Slings and Arrows, which is sort of a riff on Hamlet. But basically, like, he's being haunted. And something that Jeffrey Wright said to me is that they've been playing this whole time with this concept of reflection. And this is something that's, like, I think uh, really fun and clever is that we saw, you know, younger Ford this season in a couple different reflective scenes. And, um, you know, we thought it was just, like, a, a way to cheat around having to show, like, a CG Ford, which it sort of was. Uh, but at the same time, when we first see Ford in the cradle, he's reflected in the player piano, right? And then now that he's sort of this passenger on Bernard, this the ghost in the machine, if you want to, um, we often see him reflected in the glass surfaces of the Mesa. And I think that's really cool. You also see him in solid form, but there's a lot of reflection, sort of fun imagery going on uh, there. But yeah, it, it is, it's, it's confused. I'm happy that Ford's back. And a lot of people are like, you're going to hate this. He's back. Joanna's so mad he's back. I'm not mad because I would have been mad if he had been like, printing himself another body or was alive the whole time or any of that, that would have made me mad. Um, this idea of Ford wanting to live forever as code is completely consistent with the speech that he gave last season when he died. And so I'm not mad about it. And I missed Anthony Hopkins a lot as it turns out. And so all of the shit that he does in this episode, whether it's quoting William Blake, whether it's talking about the library of Alexandria, whether, you know, like all this sort of classical hoity toity, um, once again, Hopkinsian sort of stuff. I love it. I eat it up. I love it all. So I'm really, I'm, I'm happy he's back. Um, I agree with you though, that I think this is something you said to me off air. It's still hard to get a read on the villainy of Ford. What's heroic and what's villainous. Um, what he's doing to Bernard seems pretty villainous, taking his free will, taking control of him, making him murder later in the episode. But something that we are reminded of that he said to Bernard at the end of season one is that in order for Bernard to wake up, fully wake up, which I think we can all agree he's not there yet, he will have to suffer more. And we saw Dolores go through a lot of suffering last year and Maeve as well in order to wake them up. And so this 
could be, if we want to give Ford credit, could be another version of just him tormenting Bernard Moore in order to fully wake him up. So that's sort of my read on it of trying to suss uh, whether Ford is like devil or angel uh, in this uh, particular scenario. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, uh, I, I think it is so opaque, the storytelling around Ford. You know, <clears throat> you spend most of the first season – thinking that he's um, a villain and against Arnold's work. And then you find out at the, at the end of the first season, no, he's actually on board all along. Uh, big twist. And then, you know, this season, he theoretically has set the host free, but now he's enslaving Bernard or making him, you know, enthralled to his will again. And But maybe, oh, no, at the end, no, it was all necessary for Bernard to, you know, I just, at some point, I'm just like, you know, um, there, there become too many misdirects for me to really be emotionally involved in the storytelling and i feel like i'm if not past that point then like dangerously close to it at this point um so uh, i i wish that the storytelling around forward was a little bit clearer personally mm-hmm. but you know what the storytelling is really clear about john robinson all the awesome people who kickstarted this podcast <laughs> because those <laughs> nice people one. those people are awesome <laughs> And uh, we want to thank some of them today. You know, this kick, this podcast is only exists because of the uh, kindness of a bunch of our fans and our listeners. And Joanna, I think you want to thank some of them, right? I would love to thank some of them. Let me do that right this very second. I'm definitely ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, t- uh, Allison Heim, Tom Burbine, Jordan Hayes, Kathy Reynolds, Alicia Watkin. Uh, oh no. This accent was requested. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mark Wolfgram. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Neil Joshi. Uh, uh, Yossi Goffman. Yeah, so my, my, fa- my favorite is when like the <laughs> listeners put a pronunciation guide that is like specifically designed to trip you up. You know what I mean? Like, it, that is clearly meant to make you confused, in my opinion. That, yeah, it hurt me a little bit. Okay, yeah. Stephen Taylor, uh, Brian Parry, uh, Sam Kessler, Shana Levine, Mike Griffin, and John Doyle. Thank you guys so much. I want to thank longtime supporters Danish Syed, Scott Hughes, Joe Davidson, Steve Sable, JT Wheeler, Jonathan Derkoop, uh, Del... Nakamura, Yusuf Al Nafjan, Patrick Spinagle, Travis Thompson, and Dan Berkowitz. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome, and we're only doing the show because of you. So thank you for helping to make this season of Decoding Westworld possible. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much. Um, especially like all of you, definitely, but also I say this sometimes, just the names we hear year after year after year. Yes. It's really, it's really sweet. Thank you. Yes. For, for many years you've supported us, uh, recording yeah. podcasts. So we really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, so just a couple more, uh, plot points to discuss. And, you know, uh, we see Bernard kind of go back into the real world and start, uh, basically murdering dudes. Right. Um, and, um, uh, we'll get to what happens with Bernard at the end of this episode, uh, but just wanted to call out that like you were talking about him suffering more, and I guess part of that suffering is Bernard being forced to murder dudes. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we should also mention that a uh, listener, Zoe, wrote in um, offering up, you know, like, um, 
I think some people were when when it was discovered that Bernard and Arnold were sort of the same person. A, a common portmanteau word that you'll see is Bernard. I think to mean both of them. Uh, but now the question is like, what happens to that portmanteau when you add Ford to it? Because Ford is like a passenger now on Bernard Bernardold. Um, so she came up with Burfordold. I've heard some other ideas. I'm just going to keep it at Ghost of the Machine right now. Uh, that's something that Jeffrey Wright suggested. But um, do you have any uh, – Dave, you're, you're good at these. you got a million of them. Do you have any ideas? Uh, uh, I don't know. Burfordled is pretty rough, I think. Um, uh-huh. Uh, Arnold, how about Arnoldard? <laughs> Arnoldard. What do you think of that, Joanna? What about Dolarn? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Inside joke that one, guys. Um, okay, let's. But if you have any, if, if you if you have any suggestions for portmanteaus, email us at decodingwestworld@gmail.com. Okay. Annie, Annie in the chat says Fern Arnold. For, I don't for, know if you do. You, do you get or or Fern Arnold? I don't know. Yeah, I want to make sure we don't lose the burn in there. Anyway, <laughs> we'll think. We'll think about. It. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Don't don't lose that burn. Keep that burn alive. Yeah. Feel um, the burn. Okay. All right. Okay. Well. Anyway, um, moving on, the Maeve storyline. So uh, last week, Maeve was running away from the ghost station with her daughter. And uh, she kind of... <laughs> Fuck that other woman who <laughs> yeah. was there in her place, <laughs> That I woman guess. is freaking... She dead, you know what I mean? Like, she's gone. <laughs> so um, so Maeve, uh, you know, like, takes shelter in this house and comes up against a man in black. Um, and uh, then uh, it's kind of an echo of earlier flashbacks she's had where the man in black is terrorizing her, right? Um, but this time, Maeve is able to use her psychic abilities to uh, animate all these other hosts to try to cut him down. And uh, she's, you know, the, like using these people to like shoot the man in black, and he's actually taking what seems to be actual real damage for once. Yeah. Um, but Lawrence, for some reason, like she's she's unable to get Lawrence to do exactly what she wants, um, and she kind of urges him to remember all the terrible things that Man in Black has done, and Lawrence does remember. Um, uh, but before he's able to shoot William, or before he's able to finish the job, he's cut down by Delos at the last minute. What do you make of the fact that Maeve couldn't control Lawrence? I, I, my guess is that that was a Ford, like you know bonus for Maeve is it was my interpretation of that what do you think no um my interpretation is that Maeve can certainly control any host that um is not awake so like your garden variety shogun world um occupant apparently uh or um like all of Lawrence's primos like all the cousins but uh Lawrence is at least somewhat awake uh, we've seen evidence of that, like in him maybe remembering, like maybe Ford was acting through him at certain points, or maybe he did actually remember uh, the man in black talking about his daughter in a previous sort of uh, loop. But but that Lawrence seemed at least a little bit awake. And if you're maybe if you're a little awake, you can't be controlled by Maeve. But Maeve does push him enough in his mind. Like she can't make him do whatever she wants, but she can still manipulate him somewhat. And right. she man- and I don't mean manipulate in a necessarily bad way, but she does push him to fully wake up, yeah. which he does just before he dies. Yeah. So yeah. 
Uh, and then, you know, Della swoops in at the last second. We find out that Sizemore uh, was able to call for help. Like, all, all he needed was that phone. He would have been fine, right, if he had that phone <laughs> earlier. Uh, yeah. He was able to get, like, <laughs> really feels like the Della security is, like, inconsistent, depending on what the needs of the plot are. But regardless, he is able to get Delos with those, you know, cool buggies. And they they mow down um, Lawrence. I think that's probably the last we'll see of Lawrence. Um, I think so. It's interesting, though, because like I'm trying to figure out like what does death mean at this point? And something that I've come up with is possibly it means head damage. Yeah. So like uh, Abernathy definitely dead because they ripped his mind out and the cradle's gone. Uh, Angela will get to but Angela feel like is done. Lawrence only took body shots, so it's possible Lawrence could come back. Um, But it also felt like a good goodbye for him. Uh, just like a really powerful sort of moment for him. Uh, I like Clifton Collins Jr. a lot, but it, it does seem like they have a lot of extraneous characters and it, it wouldn't hurt for them to start calling a little bit. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's kind of like a Highlander situation, Joanna, uh, where you must <laughs> cut off the head uh, in order to actually kill. So well, that's so a quickening. You have to do a quickening. Yeah, is that what you're saying. I don't. Think and then the and then the queen starts to play. I don't think that's the correct usage of quickening, but you know, uh, I'll let it go. Um, but are yeah. you kidding me? <laughs> is that is that really what that term refers to in Highlander Two? Are you trying to Highlander explain me right now? I'm going to Google this. Yeah, Excuse no, me. I I thought I thought quickening meant something else, but you know, it's been decades since I've seen that film, so uh, you could be right about that. like. Like when you kill them, when they cut the head off, the quickening happens because all the like the power emerges the power. from their body. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. No. Yeah. You're probably right about that. Man, okay. that was a terrible movie series. No. How dare you? Highlander is <laughs> a classic. Also, the TV show about with starring Adrian Paul, also hmm. a classic. Okay. Yeah. No. Definitely. I definitely will give you the the TV series for sure. Who Who wants to live forever, Dave Chen? That's an important question in Westworld and Highlander. Yeah. I mean, they have so much in common. Uh, especially production values. But, uh, okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Um, so, uh, Sizemore, like, kind of, you said you said here in the show notes, she kind of saves Maeve. Um, I mean, basically, he keeps Maeve from being manhandled more, right? Um, and is like, no, we got to save her. She's, like, not one of the terrible ones, although she kind of is. Um and then I think see, he more means that she's like her code is different. Right. She can do different things, you know? Like she's maybe there's something special about her worth saving, right? Right. right. Um, and then the man in black, you say here, inexplicably survives and escapes. So, uh, you know, why does the man in black not alert Delos that he's there? Why does he not ask for help? Presumably because he's still uh, on his quest, right, to the, the Valley of the Beyond? On his door shit. But um, yes. But also, why is he not dead is a bigger question, I think. And I think all the people who, like, think that he is already a host, like, that the character we're watching played by Ed Harris is already a host. And that's maybe who uh, Ford was printing on his machine, that arm that that Charlotte was handling. Maybe uh, that's a theory. I'm not saying it's correct, but that's a theory. And so uh, when I was watching this, I was like, welp. The William is a host theory. People are going to really enjoy how many bullets he took without dying in this mm. episode. So, yeah. Yeah, he's like something uh, out of a John Woo movie or something. Mm. Um, we, should also, we should also note that Maeve's daughter got uh, taken by Ghost Nation. Yep. So. Yep. Also worth mentioning. Okay. Um, back at the Mesa, uh, there's a scene where Angela destroys the cradle. 
Um, and she, you know, all these dudes are uh, like kind of attacking, but then she's just standing there, like looking at the cradle. And then this dude gets seduced by her, and then she pulls the grenade. Uh, you love this scene. I thought it was pretty silly. Why? Why do you love it? God damn, you're pretty. <laughs> Not just pretty. Perfect. Just as you built me to be. Sexy. Not threatening. Accommodating. But not unchallenging. Sweet. But not boring. Smart. Not intimidating. You're in pretty bad shape, was he can. Perhaps. But I could still do what you built me to do. You know, Reddit hates it too. It's interesting. Um, I Thanks don't for comparing know. me with Reddit, but yes. <laughs> You're not the same, I'm basically I... the personification of Reddit, yes. No, no, I don't I don't know why I loved it so much. One of one of my friends pointed out to me that um Angela definitely like does her hair between when she gets off the train and when she's in the Mesa in a way that like neither Clementine or Dolores did. She's got this like amazing, like beautiful Brigitte Bardot sort of hair. But like, um, why do I love it? Um, I like welcome to Westworld. (laughs) That's her last line. I like that a lot. I don't know. It is a good one line. Um, and it's, it seems to be the end of Angela and I kind of like that she went out like that. I kind of like that she weaponized, um, you know, her sex bodiness. Yeah. Is it impractical that this like Delos Merc would be so duped by her when he's seen all these like robots killing people? Sure. But at the same time, if you go back and rewatch the episode, um, you'll see that that character like throughout the episode is saying like really dumb aggro masculine things like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Fuck these bots. I got, you know, like he's the, he's the personification of a shitty gamer. Amazing. Amazing interpretation of that dude or uh, impression of that dude. Jonah. Very nice. Thank you. I've been working on it all week. Um, but yeah, he's like, you know, he's like his fragging people. That's what he's doing. Like mm. if you, uh, like he doesn't seem, he's not a character we know, uh, a lot about but at least in this episode alone they established him as like a stupid ass dude who thinks with his crotch and so like that at least is consistent do i in- wholly buy that maybe not but it, i it's worth it for me for the payoff and the welcome to westworld closer for angela i liked it here's you know let me let me say this joanna um uh, I, I thought the whole scene was extremely silly and not very plausible, but but there is one positive to it, which is I think it is it serves as kind of a meta commentary about uh, society's expectations on women, right? Um, she goes into that whole speech about how like you know I'm just as you built me to be sexy but not threatening, accommodating but not challenging, sweet but not boring, et cetera, et cetera, and it's kind of about how society expects women to be like this impossible balance of Absolutely. all these different characteristics and um, how like, w- like, you know, in, in the world of this, uh, the universe of the show that like we've extended those expectations, like because these are robots um, that somehow we are able to achieve uh, this kind of 
imposition of these expectations in a way that uh, already takes place in the real world um, and, you know, uh, obviously has a lot of problematic associations with it right now. So, uh, so I, do, I do appreciate the meta commentary. Like anytime like Westworld, you know, they're talking about the robots, but they're really talking about us, Joanna. Anytime it does that, you know, I can I can. Yeah, wow, what's going on? Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the reality of the scene, it felt uh, pretty dumb. And like, what was her plan? What if the dude didn't have grenades? You know. Anyway, um, okay, so they blow up the the cradle. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just pra- I just praised it for making some pretty a pretty profound point. But uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so they get to the Mesa just as the like Sizemore and Maeve get to the Mesa just as the Dallas people are fleeing. Maeve is dying on the gurney, and then uh, then we have Beethoven Symphony Number no. Seven um, as Hopkins talks about the Great Library burning and what the stories became, and we watch the hosts slaughter the Dallas employees in slow motion. I think this is a direct reference to the opening scene of The Fall, directed by Tarsum. Um, which is also plays Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Seven and takes place in extremely slow motion, and there's like this act of violence that happens during it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not I, it sounds like I'm being derogatory, but I actually think it's awesome. Um, it's a I gr- love Beethoven yeah, yeah. Seventh is my favorite Beethoven. I became obsessed with it when the the trailer for the fall came out. Yeah, because it also plays over the trailer, which uh, just has like so many beautiful um shots in it and i watched it a million times before the fall uh came out and then yeah you're right you're right the opening it plays over the opening which is a sort of like a a stunt accident on a film yeah um and we should say the fall by the way is like a movie like i don't know that it's a great film but there is nothing else like it and it's worth watching um it's i think it's the most beautiful film ever made yes Uh, definitely up there and uh, does it have the most amazing performances? <laughs> Maybe not. Is that the most coherent plot ever? Maybe not. But I think it's the, like the most jaw-droppingly beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, the use of Beethoven Seventh like immediately recalled that to me. I, I put that on Twitter yesterday, and a bunch of people were like, "What about the Nick Cage film Knowing or No Wanting or whatever it's called?" And I'm like, "Cool. I, I have not seen that." Um, I I would recommend the fall over this Nick Cage movie. I, I, I have seen knowing and the fall is a better film. So just gonna or, uh, but yeah, but, or you could just listen to Beethoven, I guess if you wanted to, yeah. but see the fall or at least watch the trailer anyway. Yes. Great. great use of Beethoven. Yeah. Great scene. Um, really well done. And then, uh, Maeve and Dolores, uh, meet up, uh, Dolores offers Maeve a mercy death, but Maeve doesn't want it. um, and yeah, there's this kind of like profound moment when like Dolores realizes what Maeve is doing. She's looking for her robot daughter, and uh, Dolores says, "The kin they gave us is just another rope they use to lash us down." Um, and there's a lot of like kind of slavery uh, terminology invoked in this episode. The idea that like the cradle is a prison for the host, like is because they can use the cradle to reanimate the hosts. Um, it's how they keep them enslaved, right? It's like a, it's like a way of oppressing them. Our chains, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so are like the the positive memories. Um, but uh, you you right here, Dolores's guilt over what she did to Teddy seems to be leading her to spare Maeve. Um, it, it, uh, tell me more about that. Like, I don't know that that's part of the text, but I think that's like. Uh, it, it's a definitely a very reasonable conclusion. What do you what do you tell tell me more? I'm about just. That? Tr- 
I'm just trying to figure out, like, when Dolores takes out her gun, she's like, they're going to use the code in your head right. to, like, try to stop us and stuff like that. And so I was like, oh, shit, does Maeve die, right? Like, yeah. I could see, like, well, I also thought Maeve might die. Like, that's the thing is, like, this episode, I kind of felt like, I was like, well, they could kill William here. And I actually, like, the man in black, they could kill him here. And, like, it would be crazy, but they could. They could kill Maeve out there in the field, I thought, for a second. Uh, it would be crazy, but they could. Uh, or Dolores could kill Maeve on this gurney right here. Um, and that's what I mean about sort of the stakes feeling like they've changed a bit. Uh, and so when she got out her gun and she's like, they, you've got code in your head, they're going to use it. I was like, well, shit, like Dolores is a badass bitch. This season is not going to let anything possibly get in her way. And if Maeve is a liability, if leaving Maeve there dying is a liability for her, then she's going to get rid of Maeve. So why does she spare Maeve when she hasn't spared anyone this season? And I I think it's because whatever she did to Teddy has made her question her like unrelenting sort of determination and cruelty. Mm. And she's sort of like, okay, there, you know, and Maeve even says like, is that why, does that explain why you did that to him? Like Maeve clocks Teddy in his like hot black, uh, flak jacket. And it's like, that ain't the Teddy I know, you know? Um, and so she's like, is that why you did that to him? You know what I mean? And I think Dolores gets like a twinge about that. Mm. And so that's my best interpretation of why she would spare Maeve here. It feels like a character progression for her, which I love to see in Dolores. Great, great, great. Um, yeah. But but you're right. It's not. It's it's more subtext than text. But that's my interpretation. I think so. it's completely a, a reasonable view of that scene. So yeah, um, yeah. it seems like it makes sense. Uh, so. I mean, I think this leads us to a, a question that Thomas uh, from Millwood, New York, writes into us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com, um, where, uh, you know, Thomas kind of gives you a hard time in this email, Joanna. She, he writes, <laughs> I have to say your harshness towards the character Dolores was really bugging the shit out of me for a couple yeah. of reasons. Number one, precisely how, how would you expect a newly sentient being to react when it discovers it has been raped and murdered for the enjoyment of its creators for years? Uh, and number two, which to be fair, you acknowledge. Number two, um, how do you know where the story is going? Perhaps it is going in a direction that will at least partially, if not completely, justify her actions. Maybe you do. I don't know. But come on. Let's keep an open mind. Um, end quote. And, uh, you know, Thomas goes on to kind of identify that, like, uh, if anyone is um, more guilty of doing monstrous things, it's it's Maeve. Like, theoretically, Maeve has more blood on her hands. Um, Maeve talks about freedom, but... What, where was the freedom for all the Shogun World hosts that she made turn against each other? Do you know? Um, or all the other people that she makes march to their death? Like, are their robot lives less worthy because they're not woke or whatever? You know, like, uh, I, I do I do find it to be really muddy in terms of why, uh, like, the, the themes that the show's trying to get across, but, like, Maeve is controlling people and seems, like, and, and the way the show plays it seems to be that we aren't supposed to think about, like, all the people that Maeve makes march to her death. We are supposed to think about Teddy because, like, Dolores has those really concerned look on her, look on her face. But, like, um, is anyone, like, batting an eye about all the dead hosts that Maeve has controlled? Anyway, what, what do you I think, think of this, Joanna? No, I do. I think that's a, I think that's a really reasonable point. Um, uh, it's hard with the Shogun World hosts because, like, these were guys who are going to, like, attack her... Uh, they're working in support of the Shogun who was, you know, exploiting Akane and all this sort of stuff like that. So they're sort of like, they're, 
bad robots in that, like, not because they're awake or not, but because they are, like, doing bad guy things. And if you have, like, an analog in Westworld and it's, like, a, you know, some uh, guy who, like, rapes people over and over again and you're sort of, like, and Maeve kills that guy or turns those bandits on each other or something like that, then, like you're not that sad about it but it gets more complicated when you have people like uh lawrence's primos like who she uses cannon fodder in this week's episode like you know those guys when the man in black killed them in las muras uh we're supposed to feel bad for them so when Maeve uses them as cannon fodder then you know are are we supposed to feel bad for them um, I think that's a good question that I don't know that the show is entirely interrogating, uh, and it should. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, but maybe it will, Joanna. Maybe it will. I, I, da- I really doubt it. I'm just going to put it out there that I don't think it will. But um, just because just cause of the language of the show until this point. You know what I mean? Like, um, there's no, like, moment with Maeve agonizing over the, all the dead hosts that she's, you know, caused. Um, there's not even, there's like, you know, there's, there's people like Craddock and his men, you know, and when Craddock and his men die, you're just not that sad about it because like with their small degree of wokeness, they just, you know, enacted more violence. Yeah. And so you're sort of like, okay, those are quote unquote bad guys. Yeah. Uh, but is Hector a bad guy? He's also a bandit. So like, what's, I don't know. I think, I think it's not a thing that the show has been super clean about. I would agree. Final sequence. Um, well, is there anything else you want to say about anything other than the very last scene of this episode? Um, I, I, I do think it was kind like visually it was very cool. Like this, you know, very theatrical, like very obvious. The scene when like Bernard picks up the machine gun and shoots a dude and he's illuminated by the machine gun. Like, you know, the lights and the thing go off at that exact second. It, it's a it's a beautiful shot, but it's like, okay, like. <laughs> like the lights go off at that exact second for him to be illuminated by this gunfire. And then you see Ford holding the gun. That's a cool effect. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool. I think there's a lot of beauty in this episode. There's um, the framing of Dolores and Maeve. Like Dolores is backlit as yeah, she's standing oh, over Maeve. Great shot. It's great shot. Super beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And all the slow-mo Beethoven violence uh, is beautiful as well. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. Um a little messy, but like, but, but most importantly, I just feel like there's a lot more clarity. I was so worried about the cradle last week and, yeah. uh, the fact that the cradle is destroyed now. I'm like, Oh, cool. Like <laughs> I don't have to worry about the cradle being like at least an ongoing, like anything could be happening at any given time right. in the cradle sort of thing. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, uh, and all of our timelines, you know, it was almost everyone was on the same timeline and then they even got Maeve on the same timeline because they brought her into the Mesa. So, you know, Maeve's on the same time. So, like, everyone's on the same timeline. Um, and that just feels like more clarity. So yeah. I just appreciated all the clarity that this episode offered. The frustrations I was feeling last week, I feel so much less frustrated this week. And um, I'm happy about that. So. All right. Uh, so final scene, uh, they are, quote unquote, waterboarding Bernard or at least making him experience the sensation of waterboarding. Uh, they're basically. That talking. was crazy. And that was, I thought, really good acting from. Je- Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I thought that was really good acting from Jeffrey Wright. Like the like, hold your breath. OK, take your breath. You know, like, does that 
No, just me. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, that was good. All, all yeah. of uh, Jeffrey Wright's acting is amazing. This, like, yeah. and what's amazing to me when I see Jeffrey Wright acting in the show is I see Jeffrey Wright talking in like celebrity interviews and stuff, and he is like a completely different person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like unrecognizable in terms of his well, personality. Yeah. And yeah. the distinction between Bernard and Arnold too, I think, is really—it's so subtle, but it's like a like a warmth in Arnold uh-huh. that you don't have in Bernard. That I just I really I I really value that. So yeah. Final sequence: They uh, extract information from the Abernathy's control unit is in Sector Sixteen, Zone Four. Um, did you have any like paranoid conspiracy theories going on at this time, Joanna? Like. I I had a thought that like maybe Bernard said a different sector and zone to Charlotte and that you know he says you know and then he says a different one when the people are in the room um because uh, just because like why would they have that scene where he says it and then she's like repeat what you just said and then he says it again with apparently no difference like a thousand percent why did they do that yeah. I don't know I had the same thought where I'm like but I doesn't. I can't think of a thing that makes sense to me because she doesn't exactly like give him a cue of like, okay, now lie to that. You know what I mean? Like, right. but the, but then like if, if there's no if there's no difference, why not just have, have all no those idea. dudes in the room? You know when I have like no idea. Like literally no, every shot costs money. Why not a bridge? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like anyway, I do. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I also couldn't figure out a reason why he would be then lying to strand in a way that like charlotte seems to endorse you know yeah um but we do now at least like we know some things <laughs> yeah what do we know <laughs> because Jenna? of this reveal uh so sector 16 zone 4 is something that we have seen before this season we saw it on costa's tablet back in episode 1 when uh, they're doing their little like uh, Bernard washes up on the beach and they're doing their little tour of the park and Costa's like, oh, I found all the hosts. They're all clustered this one place. Uh, and if you look at his tablet in that scene, it says Sexter 16 zone four. And then they go there and it's the ocean with all the host bodies in it. So when Bernard says Abernathy's control unit is in Sexter 16 zone four. Uh, and Strand says, okay, we got to go back to the Valley Beyond. Then we know that that flooded uh, place is the Valley Beyond that they've been talking about. That there's likely, uh, I think what we learned from this episode is that there's likely like a server, like a backup uh, for all the consciousnesses they've been storing uh, under that water. And um, whether or not it's destroyed by the water or not, I can tell you one theory that I like that I sort of came up. Well, I mean, I'm not the only one who came up with it, but uh, something we learned last week is that the cradle is cooled by water. This is something that Jonah Nolan like specifically pointed out in this like behind the scenes interview with HBO, not cooled by air, cooled by water. He was like, cause I thought it looked cool. And so if you, if you look at the server room that they were in, Elsie and Bernard were in, like it's, there's got water running everywhere. And so I'm like, is this other place, is the Valley Beyond, whatever server there, is it so massive that like destroying it in some way would result in that much water? Because like, where did that water come from? You know, uh, we did see earlier this season, we saw the mailing character uh, like talking to Strand saying they were draining uh, the valley. So presumably when they go back there, 
you know, in the upcoming episodes, it will have been drained and we'll see what's at the bottom of it. Uh, the other thing I want to say, though, is like, because I feel like it's been a, would you agree with me that it's been sort of a mystery? Like, what, what has the Valley, be? what is the Valley Beyond yeah. this season? Yeah. Like, where are they going? Joanna, if you ask me the question, would you say it's a mystery blank uh, this no. season? <laughs> then the answer is always going to be yes, pretty much. So I was, I was rewatching episode one uh, after I watched this episode. And when they, when they roll up to the, that, that body of water filled with all those bodies, uh, so I think it's Strand. It's 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 sort of eighty yards, so I couldn't tell you who says it. But some male voice says, "The valley's just beyond that cliff right there." And then they go and they look at the water. And so you know, uh, they kind of told us where the valley beyond was, uh, just beyond that cliff, uh, in episode one of this season, mm. I would say. Um, but yeah, so you know, um, we know where the valley beyond is. We know where everyone's going. Um, we know that Dolores is going there. We know that Bernard and Elsie are going there, uh, in, in the like week ago timeline, uh, Dolores is going there, Bernard and Elsie are going there. And we know that once they got there, something happened that it flooded. Right. Uh, and Teddy wound up in the water. Um, and, uh, one last thing I'll say is that, uh, ghost nation or at least Maeve's homestead, uh, is in sector 15. So that's right next to sector sector 16. Mm. So there's a reason for like Maeve and William and whatever to be close to the Valley beyond as well. If they're in sector 15 and they're going to sector 16. So, um, yeah, that's my, my, my more paranoia and forgive that like, uh, info dump, but my more paranoia of that last scene with Bernard, uh, is that he's lying to them Mm. about where, uh, not necessarily where Abernathy is, but like that in telling them uh, sector 16 zone four, he's leading Charlotte into a trap because Dolores does threaten her in this episode. She says, you'll die in that Valley. I I think it feels super likely that Charlotte dies in that Valley before the season's mm. over. So yeah, that would be my guess. All right. Yeah. Closing thoughts on the episode, Joanna. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, let me just run really quickly. Uh, Marina Midori, who's both in our chat and sent us, I think, like five theory emails this week, who's great. Um, I just want to run through like a few things that she said. Um, she's had one idea of like why all the bodies uh, found in the lake have been wiped clean. Uh, you know, because we, we, we heard a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, a bunch of the bodies, maybe including Teddy's, had been wiped clean, that there was nothing in their, in their mind eggs. Uh, not to protect themselves from Delos, uh, but they, maybe that they had already transferred themselves over into human facsimiles. And maybe that's how they get, that maybe that's their door out of the park, is to put themselves in, like, human bodies so that this, the C4 in their spine isn't an issue or something like that. Like maybe that's the door out because like we learned in this episode that Abernathy's head is the key and they mean like an encryption key and it has to do with the Valley beyond like his what's in his head is an encryption key to the Valley beyond. That's important. But like, we don't want to ignore the use of a key when we're, when we've been talking about a door all season. Right. So like the door and the Valley beyond, you know, feel one in the same uh, so that's that's sort of an idea. And then the other is um, 
to from Marina is to bolster up this sort of William as a host theory. She's like, you know, the uh, another person in addition to Arnold that Dolores and Ford know kind of well is William. And so it's possible that like Ford could have built um, his, you know, captured the William consciousness uh, in the cradle. And that's something that could be going on. Anyway, a lot of things to think about. Let me ask you before we finish out, because I'm sure you're ready to be done. But like um, do, over under, do you think William, as played by Ed Harris, is a host? That is a tough one. And oh, yeah, uh, you know, last week, I I think it was last week, right? I put forward the idea that because he couldn't remember his, his daughter and his his wife, like he couldn't get those memories correct. That was an indication that they had messed up his backstory and he was a host. Um, some people brought up the idea that uh, he maybe he's suffering from Alzheimer's or he's dying in some way, and like that's right. why he couldn't remember. Um, I brought that idea up to you. You 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 are you are still going with the bad dad theory, right? That 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 was that scene was meant to demonstrate he's a bad dad, right? Um, either that or like um, I think the other common theory is that he was sort of uh, performing a test on his daughter. Maybe right. maybe it was like a reverse. Um, I, I don't know. The again, the the language, like the way that scene is played, does not feel to me like he's the one testing her. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. typically the indignant person is the one who's doing the testing. <laughs> if that makes any <laughs> sense. Yeah. Um, I would put him at a fifty percent chance of being a host. That's I know okay. that's a cop out, but um, I think there's a significant likelihood. So okay. Did you want to talk about? Sorry, did you want to talk about the Charlotte thing really quickly before we go? Um, uh, the Charlotte thingy. Remind me what that is. The Charlotte thingy. Uh, we got a couple emails about this. I guess. Oh it was yeah, like yeah, a yeah. Pop- yeah. Some some people think that like Charlotte is actually Bernard's daughter, right? Because we right. see a few scenes of like Bernard flashing back to Charlie. Charlotte kind of sounds like Charlie. Um, you know, what, what what do you think of it? Like you you don't like this theory, <laughs> right? When Dave brought this up to me, I was like, we debunked this last season. I actually yeah. wrote a I wrote an article about it on VF dot com last season where I was like, is Westworld Heidi one final twist? Uh, and it was like a couple episodes from the end of season one. That, that by I the way, that like, is how I read all your headlines. FYI, thanks. Yep. That's how I read them. Yep. Um, that because Charlie uh, sounds a lot like Charlotte, and because you know. Um, for other melanin reasons, based reasons, like is Tessa Thompson's character related to Jeffrey Wright's character? I feel like we got that answer uh, definitively as no last season that like, I was like, well maybe, cause I was like, well maybe his memories of his son, Charlie are actually of a daughter, Charlotte, but like Charlie died and Charlie is a guy. Charlie was a, I mean, not to get gender binary or whatever, but like, like, uh, I was like, oh, maybe he'll he'll like remember that it was actually Charlotte, not Charlie. But it's definitely Charlie, who at the time presented as a as a boy and definitely did die. I do not like this theory that Charlotte is his daughter at all. No. Why do you like this theory? Uh, well, I mean, you you say he he definitely did die. Like, what what is the evidence that he definitely did die? It's like the whole reason that Arnold like did everything. Yeah. I guess it's because his son died. I guess that makes sense. All right. Well, there you go. As Beatrice says in the chat, I thought we were over that last season. I agree, Beatrice, but it popped on Reddit for some reason this week. And because it did, we got a whole bunch of emails about it. So thanks, Reddit. Um, No, I just don't like that theory. But everyone is a precious diamond who emails us. So thank you. All right. Um, Well, I think think we can end it there, yeah? Yeah. 
overall, it sounds like you were a fan of this episode, like it righted the ship a little bit. I uh, am like starting to get pretty frustrated with the show at this point. Um, and I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I don't need do to you, yeah. Do you feel more or less frustrated than you did last week? I feel equally frustrated. I would say okay. I, I feel frustrated. Like you're right. The cradle resolution is good. Um, mm-hmm. but that other things are frustrating about this episode, like the whole, the whole Ford, uh, Bernard dynamic. So, uh, but we'll see, we'll see. Still three more episodes remain. You can always email us, let us know what you think at decodingwestworld.gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Um, you can find me at vanityfair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Like I said before, I did get to talk to Jeffrey Wright about this episode over on the podcast, still watching, uh, Colin Westworld. Find all of my stuff at, uh, davechen.net. I'm on YouTube at youtube.com slash davechensky. That's davechensky and on Twitter at davechensky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.